The scripture for today's sermon comes from Exodus 1:15 through 2:10. The word of God speaks to us. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? Let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket of made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is God's word to us. Thanks, Lizzie. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Frontline. And as we step into the next three weeks, considering the theme of feminine virtue, uh, I trust that the Lord has gifts to give all of us. And I'm still celebrating all the things that God did through our women's gathering last Sunday. 700 women gathered in a room, full voices, singing to Jesus together. Um, and the stories continue to come out about all that God did to meet our ladies in that time. And I mention that for two reasons, one to celebrate it, but also to remind us that that wasn't just some isolated event, it was actually connected to and emerging out of the reality of something that we've been striving for for a long time as a church, that we're seeking to be, by God's grace, a gender redeeming church. One of our distinctives as a church is that we seek to be gender redeeming. Now, gender is a hotly contested and a controversial topic in today's world. I promise you the pastors were not bored and out looking for ways to become human punching bags, but we do want to think deeply about how the glory of God is uniquely reflected in men and uniquely reflected in women as they partner together under Jesus, not because it's contested ground, but because it's holy ground. 
And as you think about the women of our church, we're blessed with ladies all across the spectrum, different ages and stages of life, single women, married women, seasoned saints, grandmothers, blessed with women who have babies, who are expecting babies. We carry in our hearts the many precious women in our church that have not had babies, and that's a source of pain and loss and grief for them. But wherever you find yourself today, I'm convinced that God's big enough to give you the gifts that you need in this season in order to see Jesus more clearly as we consider this theme together over the next couple weeks. So for three weeks, we get to hold up the beautiful diamond of redeemed womanhood to the light created by God, and we get to look at just a few facets knowing there's a whole bunch of stuff we're going to have to leave on the table and that we can't cover. we got a ton of resources to share with you guys as we've been reading and digging in and praying together as a church. And there's gifts for the men in the room as well, brothers, husbands, fathers, sons. The encouragement for you is not to tune out. We live in such a fragmented and individualized age where we're always just listening for the things that seem like they apply to us and otherwise we might be tempted to tune out and lean back. But the profound reality is that Jesus has created a community that was united together at his cross where we're actually a spiritual family and spiritual family now trumps even biological family. And so that what blesses or gives a gift to or brings life to one member of the family and the body actually makes the whole body healthier, actually makes the whole family stronger. And there are probably going to be ways that God's going to bring conviction to our hearts as men as we lean in and increase our affection and our vision and our deep love to lift up the ladies of our church and to champion them and to receive all the gifts that God has given to them for us. Does that make sense? So as we turn to Exodus together this morning, what I'm about to say to you today is actually going to stand in unity with what's being said across all five of our congregations one church. So with that in mind, I'm going to pray for you guys, you pray for me, and then we'll open our Bibles to Exodus 1 and 2. Father, thank you that you're the kind of dad who delights to give good gifts to his kids. And Lord, and we pray that by the power of your spirit in this moment today, you would help us to unwrap all your gifts. Lord, my heart is full of gratitude for the sisters and the spiritual mothers in our church who proclaim your excellencies in such a way that it makes me want to run harder after you. And we acknowledge them as a great gift to this family. Lord, what we don't know, teach us. What we don't have, give us. For Jesus' sake, amen. I want to start out our three weeks of talking about the glory of womanhood by reminding you of something you've heard about before, that 2,000 years ago, it was a young woman's receptivity to God and receptivity to life that actually became ground zero for darkness being pushed back on planet Earth. With Mary's yes to God, the gloom of sin the darkness of death, and even the powers and principalities that were arrayed against Jesus were scattered through the birth of her baby. And her willingness to carry that life, to courageously bring his life into the world with sacrifice and pain and suffering, even opening herself up to gossip and slander in her hometown, quite literally changed the course of history. One of our favorite thinkers is a guy in the UK named Andrew Wilson, and he sums it up beautifully like this. The world fell in a man through a woman, 
And the world is redeemed in a man through a woman. And though none of Mary's sisters are going to give birth to God incarnate, and though millions of Mary's sisters sadly will never experience the unique joys and pains that come with biological motherhood, all of Mary's sisters are called to reflect on her courage, called into the glory of offering life to the world. And this is a huge part of the unique mystery of womanhood. There's actually a story God is telling in the way he's created women's bodies with the potential to carry life, to receive life, to bring life that includes their biology, but is actually about so much more than biology. What God is saying of himself and woman is true for women that have kids, for women that have experienced the pain of not being able to have kids, and it's true for women who through life circumstances don't have kids. Woman, from the very beginning of God's design, was created as life giver. And that's why we read in Genesis 3.20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. He called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all of all living. Language really matters. It mattered then, it matters now. And the language of Genesis is particularly powerful and particularly significant. So when Adam calls his wife's name Eve, which means literally life or living, and when he says she's the mother of all living, he's describing something not just about Eve, but about woman's unique God-designed essence. This includes her biological potential to carry life and to bring life in the world. But here's what's crazy. When Adam said this, Eve was the mother of all living before she'd ever given birth to a child. And one of the ways Eve models for us receptivity to God and receptivity to life is that she actually had the faith to believe the gospel that God first proclaimed to the serpent. Adam and Eve's sin Sin shatters creation, death follows on the heels of sin, and then God speaks a word to the serpent that someday the seed of the woman would actually be what would crush his head. And here's Eve standing in the wreckage of her sin, the sorrow and grief of her failure, the wreckage of her husband's sin, and she grabs hold of those words by faith, and she carries hope for the world before she even ever carries a child. In fact, it's probably not going too far to say that Eve eventually carried a child precisely because she first carried hope. And what I want you to see today as we look at Exodus 1 and 2 is there's this beautiful invitation of God to all of his daughters to be life givers, and that includes the relational, spiritual work of fostering what God is doing in and through this church by receiving the life of God and fighting for the life of God in all different ways, in all different relationships, big and small, and that carries with it this idea of mother as life giver. So I want you to grab your Bible, look at Exodus 1 and 2, and let me give you a little bit of background as you get there. The Exodus isn't just one of many amazing stories in the Old Testament. It stands as the pinnacle work of God's redemptive grace in the Old Testament as he rescues his people from their oppressors and brings them into the land that he promised them. And what's amazing about that work is that as he moves to deliver his people from slavery, before Moses shows up, before God pours out judgment on the gods of Egypt and openly humiliates them by sending the plague, 
plagues, before he splits the Red Sea, God actually begins in a way nobody would suspect or invent. He raises up this resistance movement to defy the culture of death created by these false gods of Egypt. And what's wild about this resistance movement is it's not led by a prophet. It's not led by a priest. It's not led by a bunch of warriors. Instead, it's a resistance movement of life that starts with a couple of midwives. And then that work is picked up and carried on by a seemingly insignificant mother named Jochebed. So look at what happens starting in verse 15 of Exodus 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. If you're looking for baby name ideas, just throwing it out there. <laughs> when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And they didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? (laughs) And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, ah, the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And notice this, the people multiplied as a result and they grew very Strong And again, because the midwives, verse 21, feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews, open season. You shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I want you to practice your biblical imagination for a moment and think about that vivid picture given to us by the author to the Hebrews who describes the great cloud of witnesses. All the saints that have gone before us, the old covenant people of God that were longing to look into the things that had been plainly unfolded for us, that somehow God would bring his anointed one and mend his broken world. And all the new covenant people of God who were finally able to look clearly at the finished work of Jesus for the last 2,000 years. And scripture says they didn't go into some kind of bizarre spiritual cryogenic chamber. They weren't vaporized or ceased to exist. They're actually alive and around the throne of Jesus, worshiping before his face. And in the midst of these people, all those of us that have gone before, that great cloud of witnesses, in their midst stand the midwives. And I want you to imagine the midwives asking us a couple of questions. If the midwives were here today in Edmond in the year 2024, what would they want to interrogate us about? And I think we have basis in our text to guess that the first question the midwives might ask you and me is, whom will you fear? Two times in this passage, the author goes out of his way to say that the midwives feared God. And that's not an afterthought because they're standing in front of Pharaoh who actually thinks of himself as a God king. In Egypt, if you even looked into the eyes of Pharaoh without his permission, you could be executed. Death was the penalty for disobeying Pharaoh and these ladies disobey him for a living. And what's happened in the lives of these midwives is that they've been so captured by the glory of God and they've gotten such a right view of God fixed in their minds such that Pharaoh shrinks down to size. He's not a God to them, he's just a man. He's not the author of history, he's just another piece in a puzzle that God in his wisdom and sovereignty and goodness is assembling before their eyes. 
to these midwives through their courage and the ways in which they are recorded for us in history model for us that to be a life giver is to stand as, let's be honest, fragile people in the midst of a world that's full of danger, people who threaten us, circumstances outside our control, chaos constantly swirling, and in the midst of all that, it would be natural to shrink back in fear or to lock and double lock a door, but to be a life giver, according to these ladies, to walk in redeemed feminine strength is to get a hold of a vision of God that fortifies you in such a way that in the words of Proverbs 31, you actually can laugh at your fears of the future. And I know I speak for all the elders that one of our greatest burdens for you ladies this year, in the midst of all the anxiety that swirls in our culture, that demands your attention and tries to intimidate you and knock you off your perch and sway you off the course of Christ, that you would continue to exhibit the kind of stubborn fortitude of these midwives who refuse to cower even before the fury of Pharaoh to strengthen this body by planting your feet as life givers in this church such that you laugh at the days to come because you believe to the depths of your soul that there's only one God and he alone holds the power of life and death. If they haven't run us off yet, if we let the midwives keep asking us questions, I think they might also ask us, would you receive God? Not only do you fear God, but would you receive God and actually join in, recognize what he's doing? There's something about the beauty of redeemed womanhood that models for us receptivity. Will you receive God? Will you receive what he's doing in the world to give life? And so when the king asked the midwives, verse 18 of Exodus 1, why have you done this? Why have you let the male children live? You can almost imagine them responding to him that the answer is pretty obvious. When God gives you a gift, you don't throw it in the Nile. You receive what God's doing. You receive what God's giving. And you actually fight your way to the front where he's already cultivating life in the thick of the battle and you plant your feet in the middle of it even at great risk to your safety. I think the midwives also might ask us if we're actually willing to stand in the blood and the mess and the pain of life and point ahead to joy. Talk to a labor and delivery nurse, or if you talk to a doula, they'll describe for you how in the midst of the mess and the pain and the agony and the travail and all the absolute breaking points that a mom gets to in those early morning hours, weary from her labor, when that baby finally comes and so much of that pain is suddenly washed away as the mom holds her baby and she recognizes it was worth it. In fact, in an utterly astounding way, it almost seems as if she forgets what she just went through because she's now suddenly caught up in the glory of this new life that's come into the world. And to be a life giver in so many profound ways beyond biology is to realize that even death can be tranquil. You can die peacefully. You might even slip away in your sleep, but birth and life never unfold that way. It's always bloody, it's always messy, it's always a little bit scary, and the only way you meet it is with courage and with eyes wide open. And isn't it amazing that the work of a midwife is to look at a mom and say, you can do this. 
Your body was designed to do this. In fact, there's no way out but through this. Keep pushing, keep enduring, joy's coming. Don't give up, I promise you, it's worth it. To call a woman life giver is not a trite statement. This is a profound work orchestrated by God to lead people to stand in the midst of chaos and mess and not be squeamish, but to live out of a reality that comes from the core of their being, that when it says in Hebrews that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, that it too for us is worth it. There's things God's doing in our church right now that feel like death, that feel like travail. What if God's forgotten? What if this is so painful because I've screwed it up? What if I don't have what it takes? What if I can't endure? And in the midst of all that travail and chaos, as Paul said, I'm like a woman in labor because I long so badly to see Christ formed in you. And there's an agony and an endurance required to step into one another's lives like that, in the midst of all that chaos, here's what it means to be a life giver. It means that you champion for others the reality that God's at work, and it's worth it. So here are these midwives reminding us that life givers are essential for the depth and the glory and the strength of the people of God. And it's no wonder that we read in verse 20, of Exodus 1, God dealt well with the midwives and the people as a result of their faith and their courage multiplied and grew very strong. Again, not a throwaway line. It's a reminder that the people of God don't need flattened out, depersoned widgets, but the people of God actually need fully formed spiritual dads and brothers, and they need fully formed spiritual moms and sisters if we're gonna flourish. And the more you read your Bible, you realize, man, how could I have missed this? They're on almost every page. (laughs) Women who are receptive to God and the life that he brings and through nurture and teaching and hospitality and service and sacrifice live as life givers who receive God and receive the gifts he's giving to build up the church. There's so many that I can name, but I keep finding myself coming back to Paul's words in Romans 16 Verse 13, greet Rufus, Paul says, chosen in the Lord, notice, also his mother, who's been a mother to me. What kind of woman would carry the gifts of God to such a degree that she could come to the author of the book of Romans, who spoke with the risen Christ, who was drowned, beaten, stoned, and left for dead countless times, and actually conduct herself in such a way that she could put strength in him. That Paul was not an island or self-sufficient, but he's, he's taking time out of writing the most majestic treatise on theology in modern human history to say, hey, shout out to Rufus's mom. I really needed a mom. <laughs> if you have the time, read through all of Romans 16. It's a virtual pantheon of powerful spiritual sisters and mothers bringing life to God's church. 
My prayer for us is that Romans 16 would read like a description of the ladies of our church more and more and more, where there's name after name after name that springs to mind of the kind of women who've planted their feet in God and demonstrate faith and call the people of God to attention to hope in God. And ladies in the room, that applies to you if you're young or old, whether you have kids or don't have kids or have lost kids. If you're a woman in the room, God has a ministry of life-giving for you that the people around you don't just want, they need. And I want to talk about motherhood now. And I'm aware that to talk about mother can be a painful thing for some of us in the room. But in the midst of recognizing those realities, I want to do what's not done enough in our culture, which is to hold up the glory of motherhood in the way that the scriptures consistently hold up the glory of motherhood and the ways in which God wants to offer life to the world through moms. So grab your Bible again and look at Exodus chapter 2 as we read. This is the story of Jochebed, Moses' mom. We don't hear her named until later in Exodus, but we read in verse one of Exodus two, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she took from him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. There's a couple things I want you to notice in this text. First of all, Exodus 2 teaches us that motherhood proclaims hope in God. Motherhood proclaims hope in God, even in a world that's dark and broken. And some people might look at Jochebed's story and think, man, that's really irresponsible that a slave under the rule of a murderous king like Pharaoh would bring a child into the world. What does she think is going to happen? This isn't a good time for that. This isn't a good year for that. Indeed, this isn't a good decade for that. But what Jochebed is modeling for all the saints of God is that she's confident that history belongs to God, that the world is God's world, that she lives quorum deo before the face of God. Everything she does is under his gaze and under his care, and she's going to trust in his providence. She's going to trust in his faithfulness. She's going to trust that if he gives the gift of a baby, he's big enough to accomplish his purposes for that baby. Motherhood points to hope. In God, Jochebed reminds us that if God calls you to have a baby, let's call it what it is, if sometimes God even surprises you with a baby, you can plant your feet on the rock of Jesus and you can trust that God's in charge. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? He's not surprised or caught off guard. Nothing slips past his protection and care. Motherhood proclaims, Hope in God. We also see in our text that motherhood reminds us of the beauty of unseen worship. Motherhood reminds us of the beauty of unseen worship. When you think about Jochebed's long days and weary nights, the night feedings and the diapers and all the other work of motherhood that probably unfolded while everybody in the house was trying to get some sleep, she takes who knows how long to build a boat. Here's this exhausted woman building a basket of reeds, 
painstakingly ensuring that it's watertight, that it's actually seaworthy. She's going to entrust her child to this vessel. We don't know when she works on it. She's stealing moments in between long days of grueling slavery. But regardless, like so many other aspects of motherhood, then and now, what she did was never put on display. It wasn't publicly celebrated. It was a thing that was happening quietly in hiddenness. And so maybe nothing models what Jesus famously says in Matthew chapter 6, quite like moms. Hey, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, so that your giving may be in secret. That's a good thing. Let me tell you why. Because your father who sees in secret, he'll reward you. That means that moms in the room, the service that you offer, especially that physically exhausting service in the first days and weeks and months of parenting can feel like this incredible drain on all the other stuff that's on your plate, all the things you put on your to-do list that day, many of which you didn't get to accomplish because you were making a human. We've got too many moms in our church feeling some kind of weird, false spiritual guilt that they're not doing hour-long quiet times every day like they used to. Like God would show up on their doorstep like some kind of celestial OSHA inspector doing the white glove test on all the windowsills and saying, hey, you really need to step it up on your quiet times. (laughs) And yes, weary young moms need to fight to get scripture into them, whether that's through listening to it or having it read over them or stealing moments in time. But you need to hear your father's delight in you, in your weariness. (laughs) Where where your life feels more characterized by interruption than the plans you made. (laughs) Those little acts of service that are unseen, that feel menial, God sees those. They have significance and dignity. Those unseen things, when they're done as acts of love and worship, are glorious to God. These things matter even when our culture doesn't act like they matter. Our culture has a skewed view of valuation because our culture so often loves big showy things done publicly that you can post to your Instagram feed but the God of scripture actually proclaims that he delights in quiet hidden things that are done for his glory in secret places another thing we see about motherhood from our text is that motherhood's about sending and it's mixed with pain Motherhood's about sending, and it's mixed with pain. Here's Jochebed fighting for the life of her child amidst the ramping up and intensification of evil in Egypt, where it goes from Pharaoh commanding the midwives to do the dirty work and murder baby boys, to Pharaoh upping it to full-scale infanticide, making a public decree that anybody and everybody is greenlit to kill Jewish baby boys. And so she hides the baby for as long as she can. She hides the baby for three months and then probably reaching a point where she can no longer keep this healthy baby quiet and undiscovered. She realizes she's at a crossroads where if she hangs onto this baby any longer, it's actually going to guarantee his death. And so she has to do something that's an acute, concentrated picture of what every mom has to do eventually with every child. She has to let the baby go. And she has to trust God. And there's a mystery in the unique releasing and trusting that mothers have to face up to. And there's acute 
pain and vulnerability in it, such that when Simeon grabs a hold of Mary and says to her, hey, a sword is going to pierce your heart too, Simeon was actually saying something that's true at some level for every mom. You raise these kids and you send them into the world. That's actually a model for the entire church of the importance of pouring into people and then ultimately recognize you got to release them and turn them over and entrust them to God. You raise them up and you send them out. You take God's good gifts and you unwrap them, but then you have to let go of them because if you were to hold on to them, they would rot in your hands. So moms are modeling for the whole church at every turn the goodness of the kind of open-handedness that trust that God's at work. And the last thing I want you to see in these verses, particularly you sisters, the final thing I want to set before you is that motherhood makes a generational impact. Motherhood makes a generational impact And I'm sure based on what we do know about Jochebed, that she did all sorts of other amazing things with her gifts and talents. There's no doubt. We don't know all the details of how she brought her whole self and all of her gifts to bless and serve the covenant people of God. But one thing we do know for sure, she was the mom of Moses and Miriam and Aaron. Miriam, whose prayer of faith and celebration and prophecy as they cross the Red Sea stands for all time. Aaron, who stood as the first priest before God and the people, and Moses, who God used to bring his people out of captivity. She got to make a generational impact precisely by being a mom. And one of the things as elders that we so want for our church as we grow in the coming years together is that we would actually actively counter the lie of the world that being a mom is somehow less important than all the other stuff in our lives. As if being a mom is like sitting in a waiting room while you watch everybody else's names get called first. That if you really want to make an impact for the kingdom of God, if you really want to make your life count, you got to do the seemingly big, visible stuff out there because that's what people are going to notice and celebrate. Listen, there are big things God has for you sisters, all kinds of gifts and capacities inside you that he's already unlocked and that he's going to continue to unlock. But along the way, please don't buy the lie that if God calls you to be a mom, you're somehow sacrificing the best for something less. Don't ever let anyone tell you as a mom that you're engaged in anything less than a discipleship ministry with multi-generational impact for the eternal kingdom of God. And I couldn't help this week but think of my own mother as a single mom with a master's degree and a bunch of skills with a national teaching ministry and people wanting her to write books and go on famous talk shows. And there's so much brand building she left on the table because she never lost sight of the fact that God had given her the gift of motherhood. She was actually entrusted to raise up a man who would proclaim the excellencies of God to the next generation. So my four children today can rise up and call my mother blessed because she never lost sight of the vocation, the holy vocation that God entrusted to her that even felt overwhelming. How do you raise a man as a single mother and thank God for the church, the spiritual fathers that stood behind her as she sought to carry out that duty? 
And yet I don't want you to hear what I'm saying as pressure and duty. I want you to hear it as profound dignity, not something you gotta muster up, but something you're already doing that needs to be celebrated and recognized for what it is. And the work of handing on the good news of Jesus from one generation to the next certainly includes the work of fathers, but the impact in those early years, what a mom offers to her children is profound. It changes generations. Moms shape the history of the world by giving their lives to their kids. And I want us to be the kind of church that honors moms. And I want us to be the kind of church that blesses moms. And I want us to be the kind of church that when the world says, man, that doesn't really matter, we can say, hey, we're standing for the dignity and the worth and the eternal worship that resounds and flows from the faithfulness of godly moms who in quietness, not to put it on the internet, discharge their vocation before a God who sees them. 